0: Abraham, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless those who bless you and curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The Bible records that by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out. And we've seen the last few weeks how Abraham has become a type or a, a, an example. He's become the spiritual father of the faithful, the father of the faithful in the last days. Just a very quick review here. Father Abraham, we, we saw how Abraham is not just the father of many nations. He's also the father of those who believe. He's the, the spiritual ancestor of those who would walk in his steps. Remember, Jesus told the Jews, you're not really, of your father Abraham. Oh, it wasn't that they weren't born the descendants of Abraham. It's because they weren't the spiritual heirs. If you were the children of Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham, Jesus said, right? And so I believe that we're living in the last days, and even in the last days of earth's history, God would have us be the children of Abraham. How many of you, when you were kids, sang the song, Father Abraham? Father Abraham. You know, the right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot, and turn around and up, up, and down, and all that. At first, it seems like just a silly song, but when you think about what it means to be the children of Abraham, it's not just a silly song. It's a reminder that we are to live the lives that Abraham lived. The father of the end-time faithful we talked about last week. Uh, we talked about how he was a stranger and a pilgrim. He, didn't, he didn't, didn't set down roots here because he knew he was looking for a city who ha, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. This was his focus, and we saw this last week. Remember we talked about the different phases of Hebrews chapter 11? These men of faith, they had not yet experienced the promises, but they saw them afar off. They uh, were convinced of them or they were persuaded of them. And finally, they 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 were persuaded of them and they embraced them. And once they had gone through these steps, and I think this is a progression. It seems to me in my own life, at least it's a progression. We see them first, they seem afar off. And then we're persuaded of them, we come to believe they're really true, and finally we embrace them, we make them our own, and once we have done that, once the Bible becomes so real to us that we see that it's God's Word speaking to us, it's not just a whole collection of historical legends, it's not just a bunch of fanciful ideas and, and pipe dreams of a butterland. land, the Bible's promises are real, they're for real, and they're for us. And when that becomes, it becomes a part of us that we've, we've, we've been persuaded of them, we embrace them, we make them our own, then we can finally do what these men and women of faith in Hebrews 11 did. We can confess that we're strangers and pilgrims because this world is not our home, we're just a passing through. Oh, it's a wonderful thing to make the Bible real for us personally. Today we're looking at Abraham again. We're going to see about Abraham and his habit of building altars. Abraham built altars. Our scripture today in, in Genesis chapter 12, it says that the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants I will give this land. And there he did what? He built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. He moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel in the west and Ai in the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Now, I don't think that Abraham just had sort of an architectural um, fascination with altars. I don't think Abraham was just one of those guys that just likes to build, so let's build. Now, I think that's great. I enjoy building. I think that would be a wonderful thing to build. But I think there's a deeper reason for why Abraham built altars. You notice that everywhere he went, the first thing that the Bible says he did is he built an altar. It's because he wanted to make the service and the worship and the teaching of God central in his life. And so we're going to look at some passages here in in the book of Genesis. And uh, we're going to see a little bit of this story. We already saw Genesis chapter 12, verses 7 and 8, our scripture for today. I want us to just take a little bit of a trip through through, a journey through Abraham's life and uh, notice some other passages as well. Genesis chapter 13 and beginning with verse 4. It says... um, well, we'll, stop. we'll start with verse 3. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been in the beginning between Bethel and Ai, we just read about, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abraham did what? He called on the name of the Lord, or he worshipped there. You see, it wasn't just that there was a fascination with building the altars, there was a purpose for the altars. The altars were the place where Abraham worshipped God and there as he came back to that place maybe the altar needed some repairing maybe you know we think of it as just a little pile of stones here i don't know what the altars were like in fact it may well have been that it was more of more than just an altar you understand this was a place of worship. So I can just imagine Abram, as he makes this altar, he doesn't just, he doesn't just make an altar and that's, the, that's it. I can imagine him sort of cleaning the land around it. Can't you imagine that and making it look nice? I could even imagine there being, maybe there were some benches or some seats for those as, as his family gathered together as they, they came together to worship God. I don't know. It's almost as if you could say Abraham built a church. This was Abraham's church, friends. This was what Abraham was doing. He was making a place where he would meet with God, where he would worship God. It was a special place between him and God where his family could be instructed, where he could could spend this time together with God. Verse 18, the Bible says, Then Abraham moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And what do you think he did when he got there? He Uh, built an altar there to the Lord. He built an altar. He, I, I, I can just imagine these altars. And uh, it wasn't just Abraham as he came upon one of his old altars and spent some time there. Other people, when they saw that altar, maybe years later as they passed the altar there between Bethel and Ai, and they would remember Father Abraham, and they would remember the worship of the true God, and they would be reminded of the teachings and the life that he lived. These were, altars were testimonies to the faith that he had, to the God that he loved to the one that he was following. You see, my friends, I believe there's a purpose for these altars. We're going to look at two purposes. We could probably talk about several, but we'll just look at two, explore them together today. I think the first purpose of this altar was the purpose of teaching. It was not because Abraham only wanted to spend time with God Himself, but because Abraham was one who God knew would teach His, his children to follow after God. Let's look at a couple of, of passages. First, first, we have Genesis chapter 18 and verse 19. This is what God said of Abraham, and this is how, this is how God says For I know him, Abraham, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord, to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. Now, we ask the question, how would people know who God was and what God was about? Remember, a couple weeks ago, maybe it was last week, we talked about God's plan to have patriarchs, right? Soon after the flood, while Noah is still alive, because Abraham and Noah were contemporaries. Their lives overlapped by at least 75 years, as I recall. So Abraham is, is born, Noah is still alive, but already people have forgotten God. Already they have gone to building the Tower of Babel and trying to make their own alternate a religion we don't need god in our lives we can do it on our own we can build our own rescue from future floods and um in spite of the promise, that rainbow which God made, and He said, I will, I'll put my bow in the clouds, and this is the promise that I'll make, that I will never destroy the earth again by, by a flood. But nevertheless, they didn't believe God's Word. They built the, the Tower of Babel. God confused the languages. He scattered them across the face of the earth. And uh, God needed to find some way to keep truth alive. There needed to be some way that people could be taught that this is the God of heaven, this is what He's like. He's a God of love. He's also a God who, who, is, who, is, who hates this thing called sin which separates us from Him and, and causes death. He wants to save us from our sins. He's he's promised to bring the the seed of the woman, to to crush the head of the serpent. He's he's going to send a deliverer who's going to be, he's going to to die on on Calvary's tree. And many of these promises were were made and they were handed down orally from generation to generation. But how would it be kept alive? Because the world was forgetting. Noah's children were forgetting. His descendants were forgetting. And so he calls Abraham. And why did he call Abraham? He wanted Abraham. Abraham because Abraham would teach his children after him. There's only one way the truth can be kept alive, and that is if we teach our children. Did you get what I just said? The truth is handed from generation to generation. That's why teaching our children in the ways of God is so important. I I hate to say this, but I'm afraid that many times Christian parents, we, we relegate the, the religious instruction of our children to the pastor or to the church or to the teachers or to somebody else. And even though we might live godly lives, and in this head of mine, there's a lot of information, I don't talk about it to other people. I don't tell my children about it. I mean, they're just children, and then once they become teenagers, maybe it's awkward. I don't know, but, but you know, it's just, it's just hard. If you're going to pass the truth of God from one generation to the next, listen to me carefully, I believe it has to be done intentionally. It doesn't just happen accidentally. It's not just there's going to be this, this moment in, in time where you, where you download everything from your brain to your child's brain, and then it's done. Uh, there can't just be sort of haphazard uh, accidentally. There's, there's, yes, there's teachable moments. Yes, there's times when there's questions, and those are wonderful things. But Abraham, God knew, would be systematic about the way he taught his children the truth of heaven. That's what the Bible says. And how did Abraham do it? He built altars. Every morning and every evening, it wasn't just that he could worship. It was so that he could spend time teaching by precept and by example who the God of heaven was and what the promises of of God were. I want us to just think about this a little bit. Now, when we think about his children and his household, now, we could do a little bit of calculations. There's a couple of times we talk, we get some numbers from Abraham. Um, you remember that when, when Abraham and Lot, we haven't really talked about it too much, they were dwelling together. Lot left Er, with er, with Abram, and, and um, they were both blessed. I think a lot was largely blessed because of his association with his uncle Abraham. You know, I mean, Abraham was a godly man, and he was he was a careful man, and he was a good steward. and, and like uh, like our children's story today, he used his talents well, and they were multiplied. Does God want to bless us? Yes, He does. And um, Abraham had had grown, and there 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 lots. Um, household had grown to, and they, it came to the point where they were too big to coexist. It's sort of like um, there, there, there was too many shepherds, too many workers, too many, too many, too many kids, and who disciplines who? Right? I don't know how all it happened, but they decided, look, let's just part ways. And you'll remember also later on that there was a situation where the the kings in the valley got captured by enemy nations, right? Um, the five kings, and, and so, so the, uh, the it, it turns out that Abraham. Abraham actually went and rescued Lot and the other citizens of the cities and the plains. Um, And and we know from that story that I think it was around 300 or so, maybe a little over 300, of Abraham's own servants he armed and took with him. Now, we do a little math, friends. Do a little math. If you have 300 young, strong, courageous men in your household... Do the math. There's got to be some women there. There's got to be some kids there and some elderly there. You're well over a thousand people that made up Abram's household. Okay? We talk about his children. We talk about his household. Abraham was not just a father and the priest of his family. In today's language, we would say that Abraham was running an educational institution. He was promulgating and and spreading the truth of God to hundreds of people. In fact, I read one place, um, maybe in the book Patriarchs and Prophets, it says that people would actually come to Abraham and want to work for him because they desired to know the truth about God that he could teach them. They would come and attach themselves to him. They wanted their family to have the blessings that his family had. Isn't that amazing? What a testimony. And why was God able to use Abraham? Why did God call him to to live a singular life, a life that nobody on earth could understand at the time? He had no peers, no one who who could, could understand what he was going through, because God knew that Abraham would build those altars. God knew that Abraham would teach his people, and not only his children but his household, the way of God. Now, um, I want to share with you um, just this this uh, one passage from the book Education. It says, God called Abraham to be a teacher of his word. He chose him to be the father of a great nation because he saw that Abraham would instruct his children and household in the principles of God's law. And that which gave power to Abraham's teaching was the influence of his own life. His great household consisted of more than a thousand souls, many of them heads of family, and not a few, but newly converted from heathenism. Such a household required a firm hand at the helm. No weak, vacillating methods would suffice. Of Abraham, God said, I know him that he will command his children and his household after him. Yet his authority was exercised with such wisdom and tenderness that hearts were one." The testimony of the divine watcher is, they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, Genesis 18, 19. And Abraham's influence extended beyond his own household. Wherever he pitched his tent, he set up beside it the altar for sacrifice and worship. When the tent was removed, the altar remained. And many a roving Canaanite, whose knowledge of God had been gained from the life of Abraham, his servant, tarried at that altar to offer sacrifice to Jehovah. Isn't that a wonderful word picture we see of Abraham? What an incredible man Abraham was. Nobody ta- told him, taught him to do this except God. There was nobody that he followed as an example, even Noah his ancestor who God had found who had found grace in the eyes of the Lord and had, had been used by God. Even Noah wasn't actually doing that well as a spiritual leader after the flood. Abraham spent time with God, and God taught him. And through him, he was a blessing to many nations. All the earth should be blessed through Father Abraham. Remember why we're talking about this. It's not just so that we have good stories, boys and girls, so that you know the story of Abraham. It's so that we remember that we are called to be the spiritual descendants of Abraham today. We are called to live lives like Abraham lived. When we sing, Father Abraham had many sons, if I am one of them and so are you, then we ought to live the way Abraham lived. What a wonderful example, an amazing example we have. The first reason that Abraham built altars was because it was a method of instruction and teaching. He wanted his people to follow God, to know God, and he was intentional about it. Everywhere he went, He built altars. The second reason is that of worship. And we're going to, these overlap quite a bit, so we're going to spend some time talking about worship now in the life of Abraham, what worship is and and why we worship. There's different types of worship, isn't there? There's there's the type of worship that we do in a personal way. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4 that man shall not live by, what does it say? Bread alone, but by? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Thy word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee, the, the psalmist says. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, he says in Psalm 119, 105. The Bible is meant to be hid in our hearts. And the only way that's going to happen, once again, is if we're intentional about it. You know, we can come to church on, uh, on Sabbath morning and we can spend time opening the word and listening to the spoken word, and that's all good. And I, I think that's, there's an there's a important place for that. We'll come to that in just a minute. But nothing can replace the intentional time that you and I spend personally with God. We can't. No, no amount of proxy, no amount of, of 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 just being close to it. You know, I wish. I remember as a student, I often wished uh, before an exam that I could just put my head, put that put that textbook under my pillow and sleep on it, and I just absorb it during the night. You know, there'd just be some sort of a osmosis or something that would just come into cross my membranes, and I would just know it then. But you can't, you can't know God and know His Word by sitting next to somebody who does. You can't know God and know His Word by having parents who do. You can't know God and know His Word by, by simply you know, hearing somebody else speak about it, although faith does come by hearing, but hearing comes by the Word of God. You and I need to spend time personally worshiping and spending time with Jesus. And so I encourage people, you know, if you want to grow in the Lord, if you want to be the spiritual descendants of Abraham, spend time with God's Word. Abraham built altars, and it wasn't just so that he could have, uh, you know, an architectural design to his camp that was his trademark. It was because he wanted to spend time with his Savior. And by example, He taught that. Um, the Bible says in, in Mark chapter 1 and verse 35, speaking of an example, Jesus who gave us an example that we should walk in His steps, Peter tells us. He, this is the example that He gave us. Mark chapter 1 and verse 35, it says, Now in the morning, having risen, having risen a long while before daylight, He went out and departed to a solitary place. And there he prayed. Jesus, who was God, who was the Son of God, who was, who was the living Word, the incarnate Word, Jesus found it necessary to spend some time in God's Word and in prayer. Jesus, obviously, if you study, if you study the New Testament, you're going to realize with me that Jesus had, had studied the Old Testament Scriptures. He would Even at 12, when the, when the Pharisees and the doctors of law, they asked him questions, and they were amazed at his knowledge. Here he is quoting Scripture. Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. When Satan came to him in the wilderness and tempted him, he had an answer, but it wasn't his own words. It was the words of Scripture. God, God, Jesus knew that the Word of God had power, and he had made it a part of his personal practice to spend time in the Word of God, to spend time uh, studying and even memorizing. And um, we know that from the way he was able to quote it and to share it with others. So Jesus gave us an example of personal worship, personal time in study. We also have the example of a family, a corporate worship, you might say. Um, in, in Exodus, you can write, we're not going to look at all these verses, but if you're taking notes, I'll just give them to you. Exodus chapter 28, verses 38 and 39, God gave to Moses the, ex, the instructions for a morning and an evening sacrifice. And of course, this is long after Abraham's time Abraham had built altars, and there he had morning and evening worshipped with his family. But in the sanctuary service, there was a morning and evening sacrifice. And this was representative, it was symbolic of the morning and evening family worship that they, all the households of Israel were to have. They were to spend time teaching their children, teaching their families. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. If you want to turn with me there, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verses 6 uh, and 7. And uh, let's just see how uh, the instruction is given there. Deuteronomy chapter six, verses six and seven. And um, here we have the instruction of of uh, God coming through Moses, but um, he's 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 giving them these instructions. Verse six. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. And that should be your personal worship, your personal time that you spend with God. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So God intended not just for Abraham to teach his children... He intended for all of His people to teach their children, amen? He intended them to, um, to spend time with their, f- with their families and to teach them these things. I believe that we, living in the last days, ought to, be, ought to give an example, not just to our children but to others, of how we can regularly give, spend time as a family worshiping God together. I think that's so important. Um, And I just want to encourage you. I know many of you do this already. You spend your personal time. Um, I know many of you, you, if you have families, you spend time together with your children. It's not always easy. Um, I think the devil works hard to crowd out that time in our lives, our personal and our family time. But I want to encourage you, if you um, if you want to if you want to uh, share that with your the future generations, be intentional about it. I remember I was on a flight one time. I was sitting next to a gentleman. We started talking. Back then, I flew a lot. I was, I was traveling about 275 days of the year, and um, so um, there's something that happens when you have, when you travel that much, the airlines start noticing you, and they start promoting you, and they, they start putting you in upgrades into different, better seats, you know, and, and I found that in first class, which um, for quite a few years, I, I, um, they just always upgraded me in first class. I mean, I paid for coach. I don't. I never paid for first class tickets, but I, they put me in first class. I found you. Meet, you meet different people. You know, there's just different type of people that fly up there, and and um, they're very interesting people. You have all kinds of backgrounds, and and um, anyway, I was talking to this fellow. He was a businessman. He was from California, and um, we were flying from Dallas to Los Angeles, as I recall, somewhere in that area, maybe Ontario. And um, he, is, he was just returning from a business trip, and he had been at a trade show in uh, Florida. And I remember we were just talking, and, you know, it was just sort of very superficial at first. And he was t- I was talking about what I was doing, he was talking about what he, he was doing. And he started saying things like this, well, you know, I don't travel very much anymore, I have a family now. Well, that's pretty neat, you know. I mean, some people have priorities, you know, and I think it's a really good priority to have your family. And um, he said, in fact, I only go to this one trade show a year. And he started telling me just in the course of our conversation. I, I picked up the fact that that um, he never wants to miss a whole week because um, every night, I think it was Tuesday nights, he was telling me he has what they call family night. And. Um, that's when they just do what the kids want to do, and they, the parents are there, and they just spend time with the kids. It's family night. They read together. They go to do some activity together, but it's family night. Oh, that's really neat. And um, then he started talking about, I think he was part of uh, Boy Scouts with his kids, and, oh, he, was, he, he coached on the, the, the Little League baseball team, you know, team with his kids and, and he was, and then at one point I don't remember how the conversation went but he started talking about, he, one of the reasons he doesn't want to miss more than one or two days is because he hates missing family worships. He wants to be there with his kids every every morning and every evening they have family worship. And i I have a little confession to make right now. I was sitting there and as I as I listened to him I started to pretty much conclude what faith he was. And there's a twinge of sadness in my heart because I wish that I had concluded or I could conclude or I was guessing at the time. Maybe I'm just off base, but I I, I was wishing that he was Seventh-day Adventist Christian. You know, I wish that's what we were known for. Valuing time with our family, spending time with our community, spending time with our kids, coaching the Little League, (laughs) doing these things with our children, morning and evening worship. I had a sneaking suspicion, which was confirmed when he's talked about doing his two years of mission service. He was a a Mormon believer, a Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I, I have a lot of respect for them because you can almost guarantee most of their families have those kinds of priorities. And I say we ought to be like Abraham. You know, sometimes I think we're tempted to say, well, you know, maybe it's because we worship on the seventh day of the week. Maybe it's because we have some truth that maybe, I don't know. Sometimes we, we just get complacent. And we don't really follow what the Bible tells us about some other things. Um, and I, I was just, insp- I was a little saddened, but I was also inspired that I want to help as many people as I can, and I want to, in my own experience, to model what Father Abraham did. I want to be that kind of a, a, a spiritual leader. Um, I have a lot of respect. Joshua, Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15. This is the, these are the words of Joshua. He says, "...but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord." Right, choose you this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord the last verse here we'll look at this uh, this uh, topic uh, Ephesians chapter 6 And verse 4, all the way back in the New Testament, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and this is what he says to the fathers, a long time removed from Abraham, a long time removed from Joshua, no longer having morning and evening sacrifices in the sanctuary, but this is what, uh, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, it says, and you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. May God bless us, may God help us in our families to be systematic, and intentional as Abraham was in teaching our children the ways of God. Finally, how do we worship? We worship in a corporate sense as well. Now, this is a a text that I want to share with you. I think it's very important, Hebrews chapter 10. I was just thinking about that this week, in fact, as I was studying Hebrews chapter 10, and it's verse 25, but we'll read a few verses before that just for some context because I think it's really important. If you study the book of Hebrews, which... um, It's a fascinating book, probably one of the most theologically complex books in the Bible. Um, Paul is arguing to the Hebrews. He's trying to show from the Hebrew sanctuary service why Jesus is the fulfillment of all their economy, all their types and services. And in Hebrews chapter 9, he actually goes into great detail into what we call the Day of Atonement. He talks about the times when Jesus or the high priest goes into the most holy place. He talks about the time when bulls and goats, the blood of bulls and goats. Well, there's only one day, only one service in the sanctuary service, where, and that's the day of atonement, where bulls and goats are both sacrificed. And there's a lot of clues here. And in fact, as we come to the end of Hebrews chapter 9, we have a picture, Paul gives a picture of Jesus coming again, and notice that he's no longer a sin bearer. And you have to get this whole understanding, we don't have time to go into it now, but The Day of Atonement was to transfer sin from the sanctuary and from the priests to the scapegoat, where it would be taken out into the wilderness and it would die at the hand of a fit man, the Bible says. Now, we don't have time to go into all that typology or symbology, but basically, this is the fact that the sanctuary in heaven during this time of, of, of salvation's history is receiving the sins of God's people. It's it's having the records of our sins. And not only is, is the sanctuary, but Jesus is our sin-bearing high priest. He, the, the priest would eat some of that sacrifice that had been confessed on. And, and in that sense, the, 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 sin, the sin was transferred not just from the sinner to the sacrifice, but from the sacrifice to the sanctuary and from the sacrifice to the priest. The priest bore the sins of the people. They were representing. Jesus, of course, was the one who bore our sins. But the Bible, the Bible says that in the Day of Atonement, in Leviticus chapter 16, it teaches how there was atonement made for the sanctuary, for the congregation, and for the priests. And then there was this scapegoat ceremony. So with that sort of background, we notice at the end of verse, uh, chapter 9, um, it says in verse, uh, verse 28, for "...so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many..." To those who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear, what does it say? A second time, apart from sin, or the King James says, without sin, unto salvation. What what Paul is saying here, and we understand this as we study the sanctuary service, what Paul is saying here is that the last days, Jesus is going to come again, He's no longer going to be a sin bearer. Because those things I've just been talking about, the most holy place experience, the Day of Atonement experience, those are going to... Jesus, when He comes again, all that's going to be past. He's no longer our sin bearer. Now He's the conquering King. And um, notice with me, we get on to down, down into chapter 10. And we're going to read now, beginning with verse... Let's just begin with verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us, the, through the veil that is His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God... Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Notice with me now verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some but exhorting one another uh, so much more, the more, as you see the day approaching. Now, I don't know how many of you have a, a modern translation, but when I look in my New King James Bible, the Bible here, is, it, 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 actually, it actually capitalizes the day. Day is capitalized. And that's because many scholars, as they look at this, they realize from the context of Hebrews chapter 9, which is went before, and the Day of Atonement, what he's talking about especially is not just the day of Jesus' second coming, but the day of atonement, the day of judgment that would come. This was the, this was the main focus of the entire sanctuary service. Every Hebrew, and remember he's writing to the Hebrews, right? He would, they would know the importance of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. This was, this was the time of judgment for uh, 10 days prior to Yom Kippur. They had what they called Rosh Hashanah, where they would blow a ram's trumpet in the morning to remind the people for 10 days, the day of atonement's coming, the day of atonement's coming. Let's make sure our hearts are ready. Let's get our household in in order. Let's make sure that our sins are confessed. And the day came, this was a time of great ceremony in the, uh, in the Hebrew camp of Israel. And it was the only time in the whole year that the high priest went into the most holy place of the, of the sanctuary. And so this was a special day. The Hebrews know this. Paul's writing to the Hebrews, right? And he says, the day's not just a historical thing that we used to do once a year. There's, he's argued this in Hebrews chapter 9. In the last days, before Jesus comes again, the day, the time of judgment's going to come. And what should we do as we see that day approaching? We ought to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. It, you know, we learn some things by inference, don't we? And one thing we learn from reading the Bible is that when the Bible says let's don't do something, there might be a, there might be a tendency for us to do it, right? Um, in fact, the fourth command, when it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, what does that infer? we're tend to forget, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's there, isn't it? It's in the text. When it says, remember, it, there's a tendency for us to forget. When he says, let's not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, there must be a reason why Paul was inspired to write that in the la- for the church in the last days. I think it's so important for us to have a spiritual family that we're a part of, that we fellowship with, that we corporately worship with. And friends, I- I'll-, I'll tell you, there's more than one way for us to do this. We can come together, and there's nothing inspired or divine or that says we have to have the certain order of service that we have today. There's nothing that says we have to have the song service and we have to have lesson study and all. There's different ways to do it. It's not it's not necessarily right or wrong, but we all need it, and it doesn't happen just in our own rooms by ourselves. There's something that happens there. Yes, we talked about personal worship. There's something that happens in the home. We talked about family worship. But there's something that God intends for us to do as a church family. And it's not just sitting in a pew and um, and knowing somebody's names over there. I think that we need to spend some time together too, so that we know each other, so we can actually, iron sharpens iron as the Bible says. We need to spend time. And it's not because everything of every, you know, sometimes we'll find characteristics or traits in other people that annoy us, right? But that's part of our growth too, and that's how we help people. We learn to We learn to be loving, we learn to be lovingly confrontational sometimes. We learn to be, we learn to, we learn to grow ourselves in many ways. I'm gonna go out on the limb here and I'm gonna say if we aren't, if we aren't spending time in fellowship besides sitting in a pew, we probably aren't really doing what the Bible says we should do here. I'm not trying to say you should come to church. I'm trying to say you should have a family, a community that you spend time fellowshipping with. Now, it may be in fellowship dinners. That, that's a wonderful time. It may be having people over at your house. It may be going to other people's houses. It may be doing activities on Sabbath afternoon. But we need each other. And we don't even know each other if we just sit in a pew together. Am I being extreme here? I really think that God has a purpose for us as a family. We're born in a family, a physical family. We're born again into a spiritual family. And I don't know how that happens. I don't know how to make this happen. We, you could try to assign small groups, and we can try. But ultimately, it has to be us saying, I want community. I want to be a part of other people's lives and let other people be a part of my life. I want to have this, this the camaraderie and, and, yes, even sometimes testing that family brings. And that's when it happens, when we actually want it. The Bible here says that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. If we read the book of Acts, we find they didn't just come together to hear a sermon. They were breaking bread from house to house. They were eating meals together. They were spending time together. And I think that's that's the intention, the design that God has. For family, I believe we're living in the last days—the day, in fact, that Paul was talking about—and I believe that not only is this matter of uh, of um, of issue uh, of worship a, a something for the the personal life and for the family life and for the corporate, the church life. I think it's worth noting that the issue of worship is a last day issue as well. If you look at a couple of verses, we'll just look at a few of them in the book of Revelation as we close. Uh, Revelation chapter thirteen. And verse 8, you remember, you remember that um, the Bible makes a prediction of what the world is going to be like in the last days. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, it says, all who dwell on the earth will worship Him. Now, I wish Him was Jesus Christ, but if we read the context, we quickly realize it's not worshiping Jesus Christ in the last days. All the world shall worship the beast. That's what it's talking about. The Antichrist, the one who takes the place of Christ, who who substitutes himself for um christ and his law for christ's law and his worship for christ's worship it says all who dwell upon the earth shall worship him the beast the antichrist whose names are not written in the in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world now clearly there's a there's an exception to that all isn't there all shall worship him except those whose names are written in the lamb's book of life i don't know about you but i want to be in that exception right I want to be in that group of people. It seems the way it's, the way it's said, it seems like it's the, the minority, right? I mean, you wouldn't say all but the exception if the exception was the majority. You would say all but the exception if the exception is the minority. And so that's the story of the last days that we know is going to happen. But God is not going to let that happen without a fight. He's not going to let people just be led willy-nilly, ignorantly into this and so he says in verse 4 in chapter 14 we find the response chapter 13. Chapter 13 tells us what the Antichrist is going to do, the persecution and the, and, the and, and all the rest. But here in chapter 14, we find in verses 6 and 7 the answer to this. It says in verse 6, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. That's the day that Paul talked about in Hebrews chapter... Um, Hebrews chapter 10, the day, the hour of his judgment has come... And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. In chapter thirteen, we find that the beast says, "You've got to worship. You've got to worship the beast, or and, or you rec- and, and receive His mark. And um, if you don't, we're gonna we're gonna be angry with you." And in chapter fourteen, the Bible says, "God says, you don't worship the beast. You worship the Creator." And He quotes here from the fourth commandment, Exodus chapter twenty, and verses eight through eleven. He quotes here and He says, "You worship the Creator, and if you don't worship the Creator and receive His seal in your forehead." Head, then you're going to receive God's wrath. Now, which wrath would you rather have? Would you rather have man's wrath or God's wrath? Uh, friends, I think we're going to have to realize we can't be people pleasers and God pleasers. That's, what, uh, that's, that's why the, the everlasting gospel begins in verse 7 with fear God. It's not because we're supposed to be afraid of Him. He's God of love, perfect love, casts out all fear. It's because we've got to come to the point where we care more about God's approval than we care about man's approval that's it. That's, that's what fear God means. We're more concerned about pleasing Him than we are con- concerned about pleasing man. Oh, it's hard. We lose friends. We, our, our, our social structure changes. But in the last days, friends, we shouldn't be surprised. We're living in a time when we need to be the spiritual descendants of Father Abraham, worshiping personally, as a family, corporately, because worship, is an end-time issue. Worship is a last-day issue. Why, do we, why are we called to worship the, uh, the King of Heaven, the Creator? In chapter 4 and verse 11 of Revelation, this is the, this is the elders and the, the four living creatures in the, in the throne room of Heaven. But notice with me what they say when they are saying, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And they cast their crowns before the throne. This is what they say in verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. What is God's purpose for our corporate worship? Is that we come together like those in heaven. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our prayer, right? And we want to come together like those living creatures and 24 elders in heaven to worship Him because He is the Creator. Well, friends, I don't know, maybe, maybe it'd be good for us just to ask ourselves the question, how is our worship experience? You know, sometimes, I was thinking about this, sometimes, I'm, I'm the pastor, so I have a different worship experience than you do. Um, we, all, we all probably have our own challenges to worship. Sometimes we come to church and we think we've come to worship, Well, we haven't really worshiped unless our focus has been on Jesus. If we're thinking about the other people in the pew, we're thinking about what we're wearing or what they're wearing or what cars they're driving or whatever else is that happened during the week or what the social structure is. If that's our focus for coming to church, and I, I talk to people and it seems, not in this church, but I've talked to people in the Christian world that seems to be sort of the church is a social club. What I think, friends, is that we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. We need to be coming to church and worshiping Him because He's coming soon. He's the creator. He's the one that sustains us. He made us, He sustains us. He recreates a new life in our hearts. He's the one who is worthy, the only one who is worthy of our worship. I don't know about you, but when I study the life of Abraham, I get inspired. I want to be more like Abraham. I want him to be my spiritual ancestor, him to be the one my life is reflecting. Of course, Jesus is the ultimate example but i want to do the works of abraham abraham built altars in your life maybe in your personal life could god be calling you higher maybe in your family maybe in your fellowship if he is don't hesitate to allow him to give you those extra blessings he wants Bless each one of us. Let's just bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, we see the story of Abraham, how he moved from place to place, stranger to pilgrim, following your guidance. But everywhere he went, he was intentional about worship, he was intentional about instruction. Lord, we believe we're living in the last days, and we want to be the children of, of Father Abraham. I pray that no matter what our situation is, no matter what our home environment is, no matter our, our, the rest of our family, there's something that we can do. We can do personally to spend time with you, to spend time in your word. And it's not, Lord, about, it's not about, it's not about just the head knowledge, it's about knowing Jesus as our personal friend. I pray that you would help us to make church, the church family, a time of real fellowship, of of gathering together. I pray that you would help us to make our family time a time of instruction, and encouragement, and learning, and be systematic about it. I pray that you'd help us to make our personal life a habit of spending time with you. Help us to be the children of Abraham today, we ask in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse,